Welcome everyone to another edition of Let's Run.com Track Talk, where we give you the weekly rundown of the running world. The world's fastest man, Christian Coleman, is banned yet again for three missed drug tests. And this time, it doesn't look like he's coming back. He'll be out of action till 2022. 2012 Olympic 1500 meter champion, Taufik Makluthi, may be in his own hot water over drugs. Rojo has a hot take. He says Hayward Field's going to benefit everyone in the NCAA except Oregon. We have some praise for the William and Mary women. Of course, we got a little COVID talk. Election talk. Just kidding, people. But and at the end of the podcast, we bring on investigative journalist and author Matt Hart to talk about his new excellent book, which is the definitive book on Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon Project. It is called Win at All Cost. Inside Nike Running and His Culture of Deception. Buy the book in the show notes. And Matt talks about how he wrote the book. Took him over three years. The process is involved. Some stuff behind the scenes. It's a great interview. You want to hear it. You want to read the book. Actually, today you'll only hear part one of our talk with Matt. Unless you're a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member. Join today. Let's Run.com slash subscribe to support independent journalism. The full interview is available to subscribers now. Otherwise, you'll have to listen, wait till next week for part two to hear Matt talk about Jerry Schumacher being a background source for the book, some crazy stuff with Nike psychologist Darren Treasurer, and the thing that had never been in print before, the alleged attempted kiss of Alberto Salazar on Caragoucher on the flight to Daegu. So definitely want to listen to Matt at the end of the podcast today. I'm What's Run.com founder Weldon Johnson, joined by ace staff writer, the peevish Jonathan Galt. <laughs> That's a throwback, Weldon. And fellow co-founder, Robert Johnson. Welcome, guys. Yeah, I don't think I've been called peevish for four years now at this point, but uh, good to be here, Weldon. I mean, this... We got to start with Coleman, right? Obviously, you know, we got a lot to talk, to talk about, but that's the big story going on in the sport right now. The Olympic 100 meter favorite has been suspended for two years. This is A1. The big story, what are you guys talking about? The big story is the Dodgers have won the World Series. My son's namesake, Clayton Kershaw, has his World Series ring. My son's name is Clayton. He woke up today, he has not been to school for four straight days. He said, I want to go to school. He was so inspired. At age two, he understands it all. Amazing, overly managed game last night. A guy who tested positive for COVID mid-game comes back and celebrates with his team with no mask and no social distancing. What has the world come to? So people think on here I'm a COVID denier, but a guy is positive for COVID and he's sitting with his teammates? Like, at least wear a mask if you're going to – I'm fine with him doing a group picture – it's about ex- extended exposure. He's already been with these guys for a while. So if you want to spend a 30 seconds for a minute for a group photo, that's great. But put on a mask until the last minute, right? And then when you're not wearing the mask, socially distanced, dude, come on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he should have been on the field for the celebrations at all. But this is this is America, and this is how some people operate, is they like their freedom. They don't like being told what to do. He was asked to leave the field. By MLB officials, he didn't, and I think he should probably be fined for those actions. Well, forgot to actually 
to do both and set the whole show for the new listeners. This is where we weekly break down the running world. And this week is a special edition. At the very end, we're going to give you our voting guide to the 2020 election. Okay, that's a joke, people. That's a joke. But it is a big week. Most of you, VIP subscribers, and people that have gone to the new shop.letsrun.com, that have ordered the 159 goat shirts, you should have received your shirts by now. I've been getting emails. People love the shirts. They're very excited. I sent Jonathan his late. John, yours will be there today. I want you waiting for that postman or postwoman at 3 p.m. when they show up. Are you excited, Jonathan? I'm excited. I think, uh, are you giving me the day off to, of work? I have to just sit out in the front stoop and wait for the post. I sent your parents shirts. They, they received theirs, of course, a higher priority than you several days ago. Your sister, you heard anything? Are they happy with my design, my, my craftsmanship? They were very happy. I was just slightly insulted that, you know, they got the, I love my family. I love my sister. I love my parents. But I was a little surprised they got them before I did. No, it was a strategic move. You you butter up the family so then when you complain about your workplace and stuff like that, oh, Robert's such a good guy. The fact that he makes you work weekend, uh, get up before him to work, not a big deal. No, you you guys are good. I this one year ago, one year ago this week, you took me as your guest to the Patriots versus Ravens game. Back then, all was good in Patriots land. Undefeated, we were going to face the Ravens. We we're going to kick their ass. It's been all downhill from there. Uh, but anyway, people probably, again, this Coleman thing, I was trying to get you guys to talk about it. You weren't taking the bait, so I'm going to take the reins here. Th- this is a huge story, and the full decision, this was a decision by a World Athletics Disciplinary Tribunal. So essentially what happened, Coleman registered three whereabouts failures in 2019. It took the AIU until June to actually you know, charge him with an anti-doping rule violation. And Coleman appealed that to this World Athletics Disciplinary Disciplinary Tribunal. And on Tuesday, we learned the news that the tribunal has upheld the ban. And Coleman did not get a... People were hoping maybe the one lifeline is that he gets a reduction in suspension, which would make him eligible for the Olympics. He didn't get that either. So as it stands, he will serve the full two-year ban... Uh, and that rules him out of the sport until May 2022, which means he'll miss the Olympic trials and the Olympics. What are you guys' takes on this? My take, it's hard to be this harsh because Christian's dad has been a past listener of this podcast. And I thought I was going to read the decision and feel some sympathy for Christian Coleman. Instead, I'm like, good riddance, man. I, I just don't see this getting overturned. What last summer Coleman had been charged with three missed tests and got off on like a technicality. But he knew he was sitting on two missed tests. And we just said, Christian, dot your I's, cross your T's through January of 2020. And then the first missed test will go away and maybe you can miss another test. Instead, he didn't do that. The evidence looks pretty clear. He wasn't where he was supposed to be for the one hour window when he's supposed to be tested. Now, Christian disputes that, says he came back at the end of that window and saw the kickoff of Monday Night Football and ate a Chipotle before going to Walmart. I mean, it's, there's a lot of inside baseball details here, but there was two testers there. They said they did not see him. It's also almost impossible to get to these three places in the amount of time, he says. And then Christian has another backup excuse of, oh, I was nearby. They usually call me. Now, that one's I'm a little more sympathetic to, if they usually do something one way. But when you read the decision, the 
doping control manager, they, this is the international people, they were suspicious of Christian and they specifically told the people, do not call. So maybe he was saying, look, I'm being set up. If they call in the past, I'm just kind of near where I'm supposed to be for the one hour window. You know, they should have called this time, but I, I don't know. It's just hard for me to have much sympathy for him. I don't know. I wish he was competing. I wish he was going to be at the Olympics, but hes I don't see how this happens. I guess his best case is he gets a one-year suspension. Let's give a little background. I mean, I, I think a lot of people aren't actually reading this this decision. Not, they didn't read the article that John wrote, which, which describes it perfectly, because we've gone both ways on this. When this when he f- almost got suspended, folks, he almost got suspended last year in September for three missed drug tests, but they backdated one. And I, at the time, was very critical. I said, this guy needs to take a drug test every day for the rest of his career to prove that he's innocent. Um, to show people that he's not a doper, to, you know, whatever. So we want him to be super cautious. And his father, who apparently, Seth, who listens to the podcast, called me an unprofessional, irresponsible hack and an idiot. And he said he would have no problem telling me that to my face. But then recently, a number of people have gotten off for missing three tests. Gabby Thomas, the former Harvard spinner, Salad, whatever, Nasser her name is, the 400-meter world champion. And... A couple weeks ago, I said, okay, once they're getting off, they might as well let Christian Coleman off. That was my thought. I mean, I wanted to see him at the Olympics anyways. He is the world's fastest man, whatever. Um, I'm just, as a fan of the sport, I want the fastest guy there. But then this decision comes out yesterday, and I'm like, John, how does it look? John was reading it. My son was homesick from school. John's like, not good. So originally when they said that they were going to charge him, Coleman's like, look, you know, I came home. I was there. They had the wrong address. And... Um, you know, etc. And then you actually read the report. First of all, there was two testers there. They took a photo. They weren't at the wrong address. Maybe he put the wrong address down on a form. They weren't at the wrong address. Um, so with two people there, it seems like who who are you going to believe on that? You're going to believe, and it's not even addressed in the report. So that excuse is out the window. Um, you know, Coleman provides respite of a Chipotle. At what time, John? He was eating so, it. Like- yeah, let's get into the timeline here. This is pr- They did a very good job in the decision of proving how it's impossible. He gets a Chipotle receipt at 7.53. They say the Chipotle is five to nine minutes away from his house. Coleman says he comes back in between. He comes back to his house, stays and eats Chipotle, and makes sure he watches the, f- the kickoff of Monday Night Football, which is at 8.15. His when- window is from 7.15 to 8.15. So he says, I was home for the very end of my window. The problem with this is he also submitted a receipt for 16 items purchased from a Walmart Supercenter at 8.22 p.m. So his argument is that he somehow went to Chipotle at 7.53, came back home for a short amount of time, but enough to stay through 8.15, the kickoff, and then between 8.15 and 8.22, he left his house, drove to Walmart, picked up 16 items, and bought them all within seven minutes. And that is the point where you just say, I'm sorry, it seems pretty clear. Coleman was lying about this, and the AIU was right to ban it. And that's why, that's why I think they stuck it to him and gave him the two-year ban. You know, the part that makes him look so bad here is it appears it's almost certain that he was lying. I still would like to see his address. I would like to know exactly how far it is from the Chipotle to his house. But if he's at his house, 753, he gets home. They said it's five to nine minutes. By the time he gets inside, it's eight o'clock. Okay, so I guess he could have been there from 8 to 8.15, but he says he watches the kickoff. And then he says he goes to the Walmart. How does he get to the Walmart by 16 items in seven minutes? Not possible. So although I would like to see, personally, I would like to see all 16 items, unless it was 16, you know, 
pieces of gum right at the checkout counter. What was that? Our, hey, Walmart's have cameras. I want to see. I want to see Coleman shopping around. But basically, they caught him in a lie, and this makes him look really bad. So I don't know why he submitted the Walmart receipts. Like it's very amateur hour to submit receipts that like get you off. He should have just said, "I was home. Here's my Chipotle receipt." And then maybe they would have had sympathy for him and said, oh, maybe it was a misunderstanding. Maybe they were across the street or whatever. We'll let him off. You know, we don't want to ban him. But when I read all that, I was like, okay, time to go. But then I thought about it a little bit more, guys. Yeah, I want to just jump in. Like, just don't lie. I think that's part of it. It's clear to me the story doesn't match up. I can't believe this lawyer let him do this. He could have just said, look, I was nearby. I was at Chipotle 753. You guys didn't call me. You always call. This is unfair. Maybe he gets a one-year ban, and because of the Olympics being delayed, he's actually at the Olympics next year. Instead, this timeline doesn't match up. It makes me suspicious. I'm just sort of sick of him. He was already on two missed tests. Now you can try to give us this bullshit? Like, Howard Jacobs represents all of these guys who get convicted for doping. Why does everyone hire Howard Jacobs? His defense just seems very weak. Well, well, I, I think this you get to the point here. This is why very few people are going to have sympathy for Christian Coleman because he has continually failed to take responsibility for his actions here. And he comes out when he's suspended in June. He has this lengthy Twitter tirade, blasting the AIU. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to get him on a technicality. And then he ex- says, I was home. They screwed up here. They're treating me unfairly. Then the facts of the case come out. They do not line up with what he's saying. It certainly appears that he's lying. And it's it seems like the case is he's, he's trying to blame everyone else except himself when really, when you're sitting on two missed tests, you have the Olympics coming up the next year. All you need to do is be available one hour per day for testing until January when your second strike expires. He couldn't do that. And I think it's very hard to have any sympathy for Christian Coleman right now. Yeah, but it, it makes his whole team look like an amateur. Emmanuel Hudson and people like that. People on the message board are like, how can you let him come up with this excuse? You know, whatever. Seth, if you're listening, I would love to have you on the podcast. Now, I did think about it some more, and I went to the message board, and I said, I have got more sympathy than most people. On the message board, people are basically taking y'all's take. And like, look, he lied. He didn't take this seriously, etc. And what I wrote, what I didn't like about this was, you know, the part where Rafael Rowe, the AAU's out-of-competition order, said he ordered the doping control officer not to call Coleman specifically because Coleman had, had recently missed four tests and he was afraid that Coleman had been tipped off or that Coleman was on drugs. Coleman had high performances and missed tests and he was very suspicious of Coleman. So basically it's like, look, don't call him. We want to catch him. And to me, that rubbed me the wrong way and it still rubs me the wrong way. As I wrote in the message board last night, the point of the anti-doping you know, game should not to be to play gotcha and catch the most important person in track and field, the men's 100 meter favorite on three missed pests. The point should be to have an anti-doping system that actually works so that you either catch them doping or deter them from doing this. So this is December. This isn't out of, this isn't even at a point when I don't think he would be likely to be doping. Although like people say they dope, you know, off season as well, but you're going to catch him when he's just because he's shopping. Like I didn't like that part to me. Either call them all the time or call them none of the time. Be consistent. It's kind of like Supreme Court precedent. If he thinks they're going to call them, like, yes, he's an idiot. He's sitting on two tests. They, they almost got him a few months ago. Sit at home. But he thinks, oh, it's only, you know, across the parking lot to the Walmart. I can always come back. I can kind of see how he'd do that if he hadn't lied. Then the fact that he lies about it makes me think, man, he wasn't taking this seriously. So, I mean, 
athletes, any pros you want to email me, robert at letsrun.com. Oh, by the way, you can always email the show, pod at letsrun.com, or call the show, 844-LETS-RUN, 844-538-7786. But are, is it expectation, John, that the pros think that they're always going to call in America? I think a lot of, I think, well, certainly Coleman seems to think that way. And Robert, I do think that's a great point that you made. I don't think they should be ordering him specifically to not call Coleman. I think the I, the goal here should be to try to get an athlete to complete the test, if at all possible. And if an athlete is sitting on two missed tests and they know they're going to test positive, they're going to find a way to avoid that test, even with the phone call. Yeah, so, it's kind of like blind justice for all. I'm fine for targeting tests and going after the high-profile people because it's a, they're a bigger deterrent if you catch the big fish. But I, I think that the process, once you're actually doing the test, should be the same whether it's the worst runner in the testing pool or the best runner in the testing pool. So I do have some sympathy for him. It's still not going to bother me if he gets reduced to one year. People will debate whether he's a doper or not for the rest of his career regardless. That's what I said after in September. I said, look, this guy needs to take a drug test every day for the rest of his life to prove to people that he's clean. Because if you look at the all-time 100-meter list, I mean, basically nobody's run under 9.9 uh, you know, and, and come out clean. No, under nine eight, I would say is more. There are guys in the nine eights who, have, you know, they're right now like Michael Norman, Divino Daduru, Noah Lyles. None of those guys have any sort of association with drugs. Okay, under nine eight, that that you know, except for St. Bolt, that haven't really had some sort of link to to questionable stuff. So part of this still bothers me. It, I'm, it's it's kind of like the Alberto Salazar thing is like so Salazar got banned. But he never actually doped anyone except for his assistant coach. Okay, that's not very satisfying for me. And then here, we've got the world's fastest man. He's not going to be at the Olympics, which sucks as a fan and as a journalist. And then we got him sort of because they they were pissed. They couldn't get him in September, so they sort of didn't call him to make sure they got him. Nah, that, that rubs me the wrong way. So I do have, I can't believe it, a little bit of sympathy for this guy who apparently is a liar. And I also... I don't like the way they write these reports. Put that, and I guess they can't put the addresses in there, but show me exactly how far. Say we ran it on Google Maps three times. You know, if he walked there, it would be 20 minutes. If he drove there, it would be seven minutes, etc. Yeah, if, if they always call at the end of your hour and specifically don't this time, and you always operate under that assumption, there would be some sympathy there. Uh, there's no evidence that that's proven, but Coleman then shouldn't make up something that appears to not be true. But perhaps on a, on an appeal, he could say, like, look, this is what normally happens. I deserve some sympathy. One thing I wanted to say here, though. So th- the out-of-competition manager for the AIU, the guy who ordered them not to test, not to call Coleman, he gave three reasons why they didn't want to call him. The first one was that he had recently missed four tests. So I guess that was spread out over a couple of years. The second was that there had been a combination of very good performances by the athletes and missed tests. So I agree with those two. I don't think those two reasons are valid because like Robert said, it does seem like they're just trying to intentionally get him to miss a test for those reasons. But then the third reason was he had an impression that the athlete might have been forewarned on previous tests. So <clears throat> they don't go into detail about this. I would like them to. I would like to know, is this just is this impression a hunch? Does he actually have evidence that Coleman was being tipped off about test because if so that's pretty serious and then i can understand why they wouldn't want to call him but i'd I'd like to know more about that before issuing this order yeah but this is why the whole thing bothers me the the whole missed test thing 
is bothering me because it's not running very consistently. It's not running. It hasn't been run in a real professional manner. So they're admitting they knew that some people were called, some people aren't called. They're going after him. I think he has grounds for an appeal to get this reduced because they're like treating him differently than someone else. It's like when a cop pulls over a, a white driver and sort of lets them fly by, but pulls over a black driver and gives them a body search. I have some sympathy for Christian on this because of that point in, in of, of the case. But big picture for me is different. You know, Seth Coleman called me the unprofessional, irresponsible hack and idiot. The person that comes off as unprofessional and irresponsible here is Christian. So it's amazing that I have any sympathy for him. Um, So he should have been taking this more seriously, definitely. A few, you know, a few, um, a couple of months ago when we heard he was going to be charged, we thought, well, maybe he got the wrong address, blah, blah, blah. No, that sympathy is gone for me now. Big picture for me though, John, moving forward, Anti-doping authorities, World Athletics, you've got to get this right. There should be no doubt on these things. As I've said before, use cell phones. Take a video. Take a picture. I'm here. It's 9.15. Here's the picture. I'm taking a video. It's Here's my watch. You know, And you knock on the door, and then you show yourself leaving that door. And then you can have a GPS on, on, on the athlete's phone to show where they are during the hour if you want to. But I don't think it should be three missed tests. Three missed tests is way too many. If this guy actually was doping, they think he's getting away with it. You, you just sit out. You just hide in your underneath your bed for you know, take your drugs, hide underneath your bed, and they're not going to catch you. It should be two missed tests, and you're gone. <laughs> you get one, and then you get real serious about it, and you make sure you're damn where you're supposed to be. You know, I can understand missing one test because you got an extra one. But once you're sitting on when, when you're sitting on du- on double jeopardy or whatever. You don't miss this test. You don't go to Chipotle. You don't go to Walmart. But it's just, it sucks to be a fan. Why don't we go to the other doping story, which will be even more fun for the distance winners. Yeah, well, this one's kind of a weird one because it was broken in, I think, Le Keep or uh, Stard. There was a French publication that broke this story about Taufik McClouffy. And they said they found syringes and doping materials unspecified it's unclear what sort of doping materials were in this bag other than syringes and then documents belonging to Taufik McClouffy and this was at a French training center now there's an investigation going on they're trying to figure out you know what exactly is going on here McClouffy if you guys you know I'm sure everyone listening knows who he is he's a 2012 Olympic champion he raised a lot of suspicions in 2012 because he basically came out of nowhere and then just destroyed everyone in the 2012 Olympic final. He also came back to take silver in the 1500 and the 800 of the 2016 Olympics, and he medaled at Worlds in the 1500 as well last year. So what do you make of all this? Silver last year. Silver in the, in the uh, 1500. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a guy, for some reason, Let's Run hasn't paid that much attention to it. I mean, his accomplishments are amazing, if you think about it, because he shows up in the big years. Olympic gold, two Olympic silvers, and then a world championship silver? Like, I don't think of him as like, I've never paid as much attention to him as a Kiprop or even a Willis or Centro, etc. And the reason is, John, is as someone said, uh, I think on the message board, like the thread starting this, wasn't it like, is anyone surprised by this? This doesn't surprise me at all. The way he destroyed that Olympic final, the way he sort of came out of nowhere you know, went from 334, well, I guess he was 332, 332.94 in 2010, then 330, I don't know. His 2012 results were so suspicious. The doubles were so suspicious. He's from Northern Northern Africa. Was coached by Jama Aden in 2012 when he won the Olympics? Yeah. So 
call me what's the term, John? Xenophobic or I, I have a stereotype of the most likely person to be doping is the North African to me. When they do, when I see a or, or, or a Russian woman, I've always thought that say it's biased or whatever. But when I see an Africa a result from someone born in North Africa or a Russian woman, I'm like, okay, 100% dirty. That's what I think in my head. That is my thought, and I assumed he was dirty all along. So this doesn't surprise me at all. But it's weird. I remember meeting him, John. What year did I take you to Prefontaine Classic? I think it was the first meet you ever did at Let's Run? 2014. Okay, McClophy was there, right? Yeah. And I remember talking to him. He was a friendly guy, and I'm like, oh, maybe he's not doping. You get to know someone, you kind of like them, they have a good personality. You didn't get to know him. You talked to him for like, he was smiling for like two, two minutes after a race. I know, but it's just, it's just interesting. You, you, there's a human side to all this. And I actually was talking to my wife about doping the other day. And people may be shocked about this because we consider ourselves leaders in the anti-doping movement. I, I, you know, I was calling out Regina Jacobs for being an EPO in 2001. We'll link to that in the show notes. Back when no one reporter would ever ask people about doping, I did. But I said to my wife, you know what? If you're living in like a mud hut in Africa, you know, you're in Kenya, and you can take a little bit of drugs that really aren't going to hurt you. Doctors give out HGH and steroids to adults all the time, and you can make. Ten, twenty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars instead you're gonna make ten dollars a day. I can easily see why some of these people are doing it. The financial incentive for them to do it is insane compared to Americans. Robert, I just want to get to your thing though. I've never I mean, I've interviewed this guy a few times. I never got the sense that he was you know, doing everything above board. Look look, I he still hasn't tested positive, he hasn't been suspended or anything for this, but last year at the World Championships he said, I was talking to him after a silver medal, and he said, like, he his coach, was Philippe Dupont, wasn't allowed to coach him for, for that year, in 2019. And I asked him, apparently the Federation, I think the French Federation, wasn't allowing it. Then I asked McCluffy, well, why didn't they allow him to coach you? And he just refused to go into details. He said, I can't, you know, I, I'm not going to talk about it. I can't go deep on that. So that was very mysterious to me. Then this is another guy who just, he will just disappear for long stretches of time. Like 2013, he raced one time. This is the year after he won the Olympics. He raced once all year. 2017 and 2018, he doesn't race at all. Yet in the Olympic year, he shows up, he gets two silvers in 2016. 2019, he suddenly shows up with the world championship and he gets the silver. I just think it's very suspicious that this guy comes out of the woodwork every so often and then posts these amazing results at global championships. His Olympics result, I certainly was suspicious of that in 2012. Like you said, I don't think anyone is going to be surprised if it turns out that this guy's been doping. I didn't realize how little he raced. You know, you said he didn't race at all in 27, 2018. Then he comes back last year in July, and all of a sudden, he, by, by October, he's winning silver. He's very good at getting producing when he needs to, I'll tell you that much. So America's had the last two 1,500-meter Olympic champions? That's what some... I think the interesting thing is about that well then because Leo Manzano was second in that race in 2012. But the thing I've always maintained is I don't think Leo gets that silver if the race doesn't, if the race doesn't play out the way it did because McCluffy made such a strong move with 300 to go that it just totally changed the face of the race. And Leo, I think was able to run down some people who, you know, kind of tried to respond and was still thinking about gold he was so far back that he was able to run down a lot of people on the home straight for silver. If McCluffy's not in that race, I'm not saying Leo can't win, but 
I don't know. I, I kind of don't think he gets the, me- the, the gold medal if they, they run that race without McCluffy in it. Uh, the one other thing I will say about this case is they were, it was very scant on details exactly of what's going on. Like, they sort of mentioned doping materials, but they didn't say anything specific other than syringes. So I don't know exactly what was found or how this is going to play out. I'm not super optimistic that we're going to get any sanctions from it, considering that... You know, in 2016, Jam Arden, they raided his hotel. They found syringes, EPO, you know, drugs, all this sort of thing. He never got officially suspended or anything from the sport. So I don't, and they did get, they think they suspended Musai Bala was the one athlete of his that, that got a sanction originating from that. So I don't know. I think we got to still see what plays out here, but certainly concerning news if you're Taufik McCluffy. Yeah, John, while you were talking, I was re-watching that 2012 race. Well, it's a good point, too, about Manzano. It'd be amazing. I mean, if McCluffy, let's say it comes out and some big drug ring is, is unveiled here, they could go back and invalidate 2012. I mean, normally you need proof of, of the thing, you know, way back in the day. Sometimes they go back and do it. If they strip him of the gold, John, I think it's actually, you're correct about that. I do not think they should elevate the other medals up. Sometimes they do elevate them, sometimes they don't. But the whole race was completely different because of that. I was watching it now. Like Manzano 300 to go is in like in eighth place. His close was amazing. But I think a lot of people tried to run with a doper and they couldn't do it. I mean, even the Kloofy probably went too soon on that race because I couldn't tell if he was slowing down in the last 50 or just he was so far ahead it didn't matter. But I think everybody tied up a little bit. So Manzano correctly judged his kick kind of like a Jenny Simpson often does. But yeah, but it'd be cool though. No, no, you know? let me be very clear on this. If it comes out McCluffy was doping, I want him stripped of gold and I want Manzano elevated to gold. I, he may not have, like, if McCluffy wasn't in the race, I think it plays out differently. But if you're the silver medalist in a race where the winner gets, go- gets you know, gets popped, you should get the gold medal. And there's nothing that's ever linked Leo to drugs during his career. He should be the gold medalist if it comes out that McCluffy was dirty. Hmm. And then Central will get a bronze, right? Central will get a bronze. And it, it's interesting, though, because. Centro was broke this 108-year drought of an American Olympic champion, but then do you go back and say, you go back in time and say Leo Manzano is actually the guy who broke this drought? It's very weird to process. Can he go back to Nike and get a bigger bonus? I think that's what Alicia Montano tried to do, right, with all the medal bonuses she missed out on, on from uh, the Russian dopers. I mean, yes, she probably didn't get them. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, honestly. My guess would be no, but I don't know. <laughs> I assume Nike just didn't say, oh, here, thank you. We're, we're so generous. Uh, yeah, it is interesting stuff, though, to be sure. Uh, one thing, I want to go th- some fallout from this Coleman thing. So Coleman, as it stands, you know, he's appealing his case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. I don't think they're going to overturn it. I don't think the facts are in his favor at all. But I do think it's possible they knock that down from two years to one. And if they do that, he would be eligible to return in May next year, and he will be able to compete at the trials and the Olympics. So I'm going to be curious to follow that. But assuming he's out for the Olympic Games, who do you guys think is now the favorite for 100-meter gold in Tokyo? Well, Weldon, Jonathan wrote an article about this, and I was editing it last night, and I, I don't think Weldon's had a chance to read it yet. Weldon, I, I, and I wrote John up after a couple, reading a couple of these people who he had. I said, John, your odds for for um, Usain Bolt and Justin Gatlin are way, way off. 
And John said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make them even higher. Like, make them less likely to win it. And I was like, no, no, no. You've already got them way too unlikely to win it. I would move them way up in terms of being much more likely. So, Weldon, if I had to ask you on a percentage basis about some of these names. So, John's got Noah Lyles as the favorite to win the Olympic gold now. On what percent, on what John says, he gives a percentage estimate that he wins this race. What do you think? Well, I try to do odds. You love using these percentage things, Robert, but I try to do like gambling odds, you know? If you say two to one, I convert that into. I I know, I know. But like, Weldon, who do you think's the favorite and what are their odds? Full disclosure, I'm in the article now. I have not seen Noah Lyles' odds, though. I've seen some of the ones below. I was thinking, oh, who's the favorite? Like, Noah Lyles? I'm like, is he even going to run 100? So that's kind of weird. The guy who may be the favorite in the Olympics may not even run the no, event. He is going to run the 100. He's been very clear on this point. He's doing the double in Tokyo. Okay, so he's your favorite. Like, maybe slightly under 50%. Okay. John said 2 to 1, 33%. Then he's got Andre de Grasse at 3 to 1, which is 25%. Okay, those are you know pretty pretty accomplished guys. Do these add up though? Oh, Robert Justin Gatlin, no way, Z- like zero percent chance. I'm shocked. I see he's almost at ten percent. Okay, no, I would put Gatlin at like two percent. He's too old. There's no way he beats all of these guys. This is my point. I'm saying Robert, the same come thing on. Well, just, he's 39 years old. Okay, let's just go down the list. Then he's got Trayvon Bumel, who's really came back and ran um, 990 this this year. He's only 25. I agree with that. Those are the top three. 20 percent. He says four to one. 20 percent. Then he's got the double NCAA champion from Texas Tech, Divine Aruru. At eight to one, which is eleven percent, then he's got Ronnie Baker, who's never even made a U.S. team, I don't think, right, John? No, he has not. Um, he's at ten to one, nine percent, and then he's got Justin Gatlin. I'm like, come on, Justin Gatlin's won an Olympic gold. I mean, he was doping at the time in the past. He was silver to Usain Bolt. He beat Usain Bolt at the Worlds in 2017. Um, he's got him below Ronnie Baker. I'm like, no, I just think Justin Gatlin's odds should be higher than Ronnie Baker's. I know he's a hell of a lot older. He's 12 years older, but he's got that at 12 to 1, 7.69%. Then he's got Michael Norman. This is the 400-meter star. Everyone's like, yeah, he should do it now on the message board. 50 to 1, 1.96%. But the one that's absurd to me is he's got Usain Bolt at 100 to 1. If Usain Bolt started training, which is 0.99%, it's a 1% chance. If Usain Bolt started training right now, if it was announced on December, excuse me, October 28, 2020, if Ricky Sims said right now, Usain Bolt is, he's seen the news, uh, Mr. Coleman is out, and we're coming back, we're training for the Olympics. What do you think his odds would be? I'd drop his odds down. He'd be like 7 to 1, 6 to 1, maybe even lower. Like, he'd be way up there. But that announcement's not coming, Robert. Here, here is the, Here is the reason why, okay? Because... We got up to March of 2020, an Olympic year, and there was no evidence Usain Bolt was attempting a comeback for Tokyo. You know, we were going to have the 2020 Olympics on schedule. He wasn't doing them. And now you think just because Coleman's been suspended and his suspension might be truncated based on this appeal, Bolt is going to come out of retirement from the life of luxury he's been living and try to win an Olympic gold. I'd love to see it, but I don't see it happening. You know, Bolt's a new father, John. He may be seeing, hey, man, staying home isn't, isn't that much fun with this little baby. I got to get out of the house, do some work, get out there. Maybe he's bored of COVID. I guess he's already, I, guess, I, don't, I don't think Bolt's exactly staying at home with the baby all day. He's, he just got COVID, had a huge birthday bash. But, hey, but he, uh, 
if he did train, I'd put him at least. I think he would be the betting favorite because people would just put money on him because they know who Same Bolt is. Yeah, the bet that right, you'd get that odds bump because he's a public figure, and you know, I, I it would be. I mean, it would be so fun. He's only thirty four. You know, well, that's old. Okay, Robert. Yeah, that's a fair point. Thirty four is pretty old for a sprinter. But Justin Gatlin won Worlds in twenty seventeen. Thirty five. Usain Bolt is the greatest sprinter of all time. You know, I'm kind of hoping, like maybe if he does come back, you know, he was hobbled by those back injuries and sort of hamstring issues at the end of his career. Maybe he's taken some time to heal up. I think he'd. I definitely think he'd have a shot. I think it would be great to see. Who knows. This whole thing's crazy because I have no sympathy for Coleman, yet I probably want him running at the Olympics. I mean, that's like the fan of me part versus the whatever, because I don't know who's doing what, but no sympathy for Christian Coleman. How about we turn to some positive news, guys and girls? The girls are all listening. They're not on the show right now. And this positive news comes from the William & Mary Women's Cross Country and Track and Field team. Earlier this year, it was announced that William Mary was cutting its men's teams, or it's just its men's track team. Is that correct? Yes. They're going to keep cross country, which doesn't really make sense. And there was an outrage. The athletic director has already been fired at William Mary, so there was an upswell of support. But the men's team still has not been reinstated. And now the women's team has come out and said, hey, you know, we're. St- some of us are still on scholarship, but just FYI, we will not be competing unless the men's team comes back. And I think this is just tremendous. It is women standing for equality. I think if there's a men's team and, a, and if you cut a men's team and not a women's team, that's just pure discrimination. People can see what that is. What's not, what's football is its own thing. That's separate. Men don't pretty much only play football. There's all these societal differences there but like we're just going to discriminate against men and get rid of men's track and not women i'm glad these women see it differently and like we're going to stand up for equality and we're not going to compete until the men's team is back i think it's amazing well then i'm thinking back to my college days i don't i mean we got along okay with our women's team i don't know if the, the men's team at dartmouth would have been committed to taking this step if this happened i think it's incredible i already liked william and mary a lot as a school it has a really nice campus it's a great school my sister went there but these women on this team really, I have so much respect for them. I think it's incredible what they're doing. And hopefully this is, you know, a big dramatic action like this helps the administration come to their senses and restore the team. But just so much respect for what those women at William & Mary have done. Yeah, I love it. The women, are, are they don't want to be treated just as a Title IX, you know, number. They, they realize the administration doesn't historically care about them. They just see the women's track numbers, way they're getting compliance with Title IX. And they're like, okay. You better be listening to us. But while Weldon's praising some college news, I have some depressing news. I don't even think we have this on the homepage. I've gotten a couple, I think two emails um, on this. One from Mike Lundgren, and, and, and we need to put this on the homepage. This is really disturbing. So the NCAA, like last week or recently, just there's a minimum number of sports you have to sponsor to be in Division One. But apparently because of COVID-19, they said, oh, by the way, we're going to lift that limit. You know, we know a lot of you are under financial trouble. So several schools, including the UMKC, that's University of Missouri, Kansas City, where this is where Courtney Friarix, the Olympian, went, they just immediately on the spot cut their cross-country and track and field programs and fired all the coaches. Like, on the spot. Goodbye. As of November 1st, I think this happened last week, they're gone. They're fired. No, no program. Maybe they'll bring it back if they have to when the, you know, if there's a new NCAA minimum next year. So it's going to be really 
sort of interesting to see what happens. Not interesting, but maybe depressing happens in the next year because, you know, I mean, let's be honest, without fans in the stands in these big sports, there's not as much money. I mean, you're seeing in Major League Baseball. They, they laid off hundreds of employees. All the teams, these billionaires can't afford, they don't want to lose like $10 million a year to pay their employees. So they're just cutting it, firing everybody now that the season's over. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of crazy. But depressing news from UMKC. Well, in other college news, we do have, we have three conference cross-country championships on Friday. We have the SEC meet at LSU, the ACC meet at NC State, and the Big 12 meet at the University of Kansas. Um, so that is sort of the culmination for those three conferences this full season. New York City Marathon's on Sunday, isn't it, too? First Sunday of November, right? Well, I, I have some bad news for you guys. Uh, it's not going to be a marathon this year. Disappointing. But, no, the conference meets are exciting, although it's weird because not all of this, you know, not all of these schools are running full teams. I'm still, We still have no sort of clarification on how you're going to pick NCAAs for next year. There's not going to be regional championships in the winter. But these, these conference meets theoretically could count, but – some of these schools aren't running full teams. I mean, I was looking at the Division II ranks. Like, um, Adam State was fourth in the conference meet in their men's and women's te- teams last week or the week before. And I was like, what's up with that? Adam State is normally one of the best teams in the country. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good conference. Someone's like, well, yeah, they have a lot of foreigners. Some of them are just – I don't think they're all back in school. And I talked to John Hayes, the coach at Wake Forest, and um, he's, he's really building – he thinks a nice uh, men's distance program that can make nationals make a, make a top 15 showing soon. And – they're doing pretty well this fall. He's going to run ACCs, but he's like, my top two guys are in Europe. He's like, they're European. When COVID hit, I was like, just stay over there and train. We weren't sure we were going to have a season. The season started. I'm not going to make him come back. You know, they can come back in the winter when there's NCA. So you're not going to have like the full results. And not this week. So we got the conference meet where not everyone's going all in. But then next week, Perhaps the cross-country meet of the year. We've already said we've had a cross-country meet of the year. This is my cross-country meet of the year. For the first time ever, we're going to have the Army-Navy Air Force tri-meet. We've always had the Army-Navy meet. This year we're having Army-Navy-Air Force. If it's at Navy, I might actually go to it. No, it's it's at West Point on the plane. I think they said this is the first sporting event they've actually had on like the, the plane at West Point, which is apparently like a big parade ground or something, for like almost 100 years. So it's pretty sounds pretty crazy. I guess I got to go. When is it? I mean, this is exciting because it, it's a beautiful place up there. It's probably less than an hour from me. It's on Veterans Day. Well done. But I don't, I think, I thought I read somewhere they weren't allowing spectators other than um, cadets. So Spectators. Weldon is a member of the media, John. M- media, John. Media. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, it's on Veterans Day. This actually reminds me of, of the Army-Navy football game, how it's after all the other football games. So it gets in a lot of spotlight. And I want to apologize to Army coach Mike Smith if he is listening to the show because he called me about this about three weeks ago and wanted to talk about it, and I never called him back. I'm, I'm planning on calling him back, but it did register with my head. I think it's a cool thing, so it's on the podcast before I even call Mike back. So what? Well, that's kind of interesting, Robert. I didn't, I didn't realize the Army coach's name was Mike Smith. It's, you know, this now there's two Mike Smiths in NCAA cross country. There used to be two Robert Johnsons. Now there's only one Robert Johnson in NCAA track and field, but couple other things. So, Robert, you mentioned you were uncertain about sort of the qualifying for NCAAs. I was talking to one coach uh, earlier this week, and my un- their understanding was that the conference meets will be weighed very heavily. I think that's like the because mo- there's no regional meets. So I think the conference meets are number one, whether it's in the fall or winter. 
that will be the sort of the top priority. And then it sounded like they would be weighing winter cross-country competition more heavily than the other competition that took place in the fall because it would be closer to the championship date, which seems a bit unfair to me, especially if some schools are focusing more on indoor track than outdoor tra- than uh, cross-country. Yeah, but if you're going to – I mean, is it going to be – are they going to actually look at the results of the fall or are they going to actually look to see who they ran in the fall and who they have now? This is going to be – an SS shit show. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. One other point here, Robert. Uh, I talked to NC State coach Lori Hennis. I, I got a Caitlin Tui update. Finally, she has not raced all fall. One of the best recruits in the history of high school, you know, cross country, three time NXN champion. And I was asking, I wanted to get the story because neither her nor Molly Stalloper, who was the runner up at Foot Locker last year for NC State, part of this amazing freshman class they have, have raced. And what Laurie said, she didn't want to go into the specifics of their injuries, but she said both of them came to campus. They won 100%. They want to take them very slowly. So they don't plan to run them at ACCs, but they are training with the team, and she thinks that they will be able to make an impact at NCAAs in March. So that's the official word. Well, that needs to be an article, John, because big news. Tui is a superstar. And for the record, the same guy that told me that three or four years ago that uh, Donovan Brazier was a bigger talent than Grant Fisher when they were both Michigan high schoolers and people were like laughing. I, I put this up on the message board at the time and now Donovan Brazier is a world champion. Um, he also has told me that he thought that Marley Stryler would be a better runner in the end than Caitlin Tui. So you heard it first from me. While we're talking about NCAAs, can we address this thing that y'all had the show with? It was a fake news. Walden tried to make me look bad by saying that I said that the new Hayward field would help other schools more in recruiting than the University of Oregon. How is that fake news, Robert? We had this conversation. I thought that's what my understanding of your point was. Please clarify. Well, there was an article out on fishduck.com by Charles Fisher saying, will the new Hayward Fields help recruiting for all sports at the U of O? And, you know, they've got this amazing facility. And I actually agree with, with, with the sort of the – author's point of a football recruit comes onto campus. He's not just impressed by the football facilities. He's impressed by all the facilities. He sees this amazing stadium. It's like, wow, Oregon's cool. I want to go to Oregon, etc. I agree with that, but I don't really think that Hayward Field is that big of a draw for track and field recruits at Oregon. And my the rationale on this is simple. With NCAs going to Oregon every year, <laughs> if you're Dave Smith at Oklahoma State or Mike Smith at NAU or whoever – you know, Ed Ice doing a BYU, you say, hey, you want to run a Hayward Field? Guess what? You come to BYU, you come to Oklahoma State, you come to wherever, come to Cornell, baby. And when you qualify, we'll run there just like everybody else. Like, do you, you know, is it really that cool of a thing? Like, what, you get an extra home meet? If you're a star, you're probably skipping the home meet anyways. So to work out in, a sta- in an empty stadium, is that really that special? No. So everybody can get, is going to be competing in Hayward Field all the time. So. You know, if, if, if you're dumb enough to turn down like a Stanford because so, so that you can go down and, and compete like in a cool stadium, go ahead, man. Go ahead. I, Robert, I think this is a ri- ridiculous take. Look, at recruits, when they go, when a 17-year-old kid is getting a tour of Haywood Field, he's not going through the math and thinking like, well, I'd still be able to compete here if I was, you know, if I qualify for NCAAs in 2024 or all this stuff. All this stuff. He's just going to look oh my God, this is the greatest track stadium I've ever seen. It's a $200 million. They build it just for track. It puts 
you know, every other facility in the country to shame. And you're looking at it, it well, maybe I haven't been to the new Mount Sac, but it's the best facility in the country, maybe not the world. Obviously, that's a huge draw. Athletes are going to be wowed by that. They're going to want to come there. They can have workouts there. They can train there. You know, the training facilities, I'm sure, will be great. They can have their dual meets there. Being able to race there, like, you're not guaranteed to make NCAAs. Make NCAAs is hard. If you're at Oregon, you are guaranteed to race at Haywood Field if you're on the team. I just think your, your take here is, is absurd. But now this socially conscious generation, John, they think about what type of money was used to build this facility? We've got doped up money. We've got A-Rod and Justin Gatlin and It's Phil Knight's private donation. I, I mean No, but John, how was that how was that achieved on slave labor in the Far East? Kinda joking, be a little woke folks, but hey. The new generation may not. I just think your your overall argument is faulty. Phil Alberto, please join on the podcast. All right, real quickly, with the New York City Marathon not being this weekend, the Wall Street Journal has a their number one sports article today is on running, actually, not the World Series. Coronavirus is toll in marathons and other races, a 95% drop is the article. It's by Rachel Bachman. And one, she points out there's some good news. Racing is back in New York City. The NYR had a four-mile run this weekend, usually has 5,000 runners. It had 300 this year, and they're only allowed to start, I think, 50 people at a time. So it's essentially six 50-people races. But hey, better than nothing. And there's this line in the article talking about with COVID, and it says, large races are still are all but impossible under these conditions. And I just have to disagree. The Moscow Marathon was held in September. We did not get, we mentioned this, but it did not get much play. There were 21,000 runners in the marathon and 10K. 9,000 runners actually ran the marathon. 9,372 and 11,866 ran the 10K. So clearly during COVID, there has been one mass race held with outdoor spread at some point like i think a mass events are going to be some of the last things to come back but like running events outside i think it's it's is that any less safe than a sporting event in an indoor arena we've had twenty thousand people at dallas cowboys games so healthy young people going about doing what they love clearly in moscow they thought they could do it now with COVID ramping up again in the winter, probably not a good idea. But I'm just saying, hey. Well, I, I think it's people are fearful of the heavy breathing. If you happen to be running next to somebody who has COVID the whole time, you're likely to get it. But we, you're right. Well, then, I mean, I think to what level of risk are you willing to accept? I mean, the races aren't impossible. It's just a matter of the will, right? Like you clearly could hold a race. I just don't think saying, okay, Moscow did it. Now we should definitely have something like this in the United States where we're, we just set a record case number of cases last week. I just still don't think it's responsible. But this is the Jonathan Galt mindset of uh, of COVID, that America is really uniquely done a poor job of COVID, which isn't true. All of Western Europe is basically the same, if not worse, than America. Argentina had the strongest lockdown of anyone, a are, complete are, lockdown. Are, are they doing major races there either, Robert? No, No, but not. I'm just saying, in general, this disease, until we get a vaccine, is, is going through the, is, the... You can socially distance, you can wear masks, you know, and that's the best you can. So that's why I actually agree with you, John. I don't see the need to have these in the short term. But let's say this vaccine fails. Do we, are we never going to have another road race for the rest of our lives? I would say you'd have to come back to it and just do it. Right. And I, I don't think we're at that point yet. But 
Robert, you and I were texting with a mutual friend earlier and they were basically, his point was, you know, road racing, it's like you're losing 95% of your revenue. It's all driven by, you know, entries essentially. What other industry could survive a 95% loss? There aren't any, you know? So eventually these people who put on road races, they will, they'll need to start holding events. Uh, otherwise they're going to run out of money. Just a few thousand people outside competing during a race. To me, to be honest, I'd be willing to take that risk. Dead of winter, maybe not with COVID ravaging through. But I ran a race in Connecticut. You know, after the start, even in a major road race, how many people are actually around you? You can limit contact after the race. You're outdoors running. Like, we're just assuming we can't have these events. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe you're just like, oh, it's a risk I don't want to take. But let's just let's just be accurate on the words we're having. You can have these events. They're not impossible. We just had one. So it's possible. It's a matter of will and when you want to have them. And fine, some scientists say it's idiotic. We have much bigger things that we should be doing. But, okay, well, we have 25,000 people at the Dallas Cowboys game. So I'm just right. sort of pointing this out. I mean, my son's school is open. They don't have any COVID. So I think eventually we're going to reach a point where it's going to become, like you said, Weldon, there might be guidelines, but there will be organizations who are just saying, look, if you are willing to take this risk, we will be holding this event. And I think you'll find enough people who are willing to take that risk. I don't think we're, we're there yet to have a race of like 5,000 people in New York City. But a few months from now, we might be. Speaking of events that may or may not happen, Helena Berry says she's not going to defend her World Cross Country title. But I thought, are they even going to have World Cross Country? I mean, the organizers in Australia said they don't want to have it. Do we have an update on that? This article, I don't understand. They're saying she's not going to run World XC next year. No one's running World XC next year. They've already announced the meet has been postponed to 2022. So They have? Yes. I don't understand. Okay, good. Okay, that's, the article confused me. I'm like, shouldn't they decide by now so people can decide if they're going to go or not? Um, another news that caught my eye. We must have some listeners from Africa. Please email me, robert at letsrun.com. I, I don't really understand this. All these guys and gals... They, you know, they also have jobs on the side, like for the police and the military. I guess their economy is like there's really no money unless you're working for some government organization or something. I don't get it. Joseph Chubby guy is in line for police promotion. He's going to be re- promoted to the rank of inspector of police to assistant superintendent of police. Like, what? How much money do they make for these jobs? Like, don't is there any complaints in these countries that like, hey, uh, our star athlete is also a policeman? Like. I don't, I don't get it. Like, someone explain that to me. We have this in America, Robert. It's called the W cap. These the people, the athletes in the W cap, they're paid just to run, representing the army. So, I'm guessing it's pretty similar for that to that. You know, and the, the athletes, if you have an opportunity to do to get paid, you maybe you get a pension or insurance or other benefits, and it's really just you're not actually doing anything police related, of course they're going to take it. So that would be my expectation. Oh, that's kind of, I had never thought of that, John. It's the same as a WCAP. Oh, maybe we should do that to, to improve the police image in America. Actually, can you imagine that if the police started sponsoring pro athletes? Like, people probably that would be very them. interesting if yeah they start sponsoring like NNF, the San Francisco 49ers. Well, I don't think that the 49ers would agree, but that would be very interesting. And then we talked about the Michigan Pro Academy last week. John, you said it was pretty windy. How hilly was it? I was looking at some of the times as I was perusing race results weekly the other day. We had a professional race with the men's 5K. The fastest split was 1441. Like, were they running into a hurricane? Uh, we had three of the seven runners run over 15 minutes. 
on, a, on, a, on the women's 5K, which wasn't the same leg, but you had a professional women's runner running 1946, 1801, 1742, and 1730. I don't want to bash him, but, man, that's not exactly very impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not crazy, but I think some of these guys, like Shadrach Biwat, he's a marathoner. He was the f- fastest leg, actually, 1441 on that leg. Not all of those guys are, like, in peak shape. And I think the guy, the idea was you would put your weakest athlete on the 5K leg because they are covering the shortest distance. So that might be, if a team has only two really good guys, they put them on the 10K and 6.1K leg, and then the guy who's you know not quite in the best shape right now would run the 5K leg. That would be my assumption. Also, late-breaking news, though people who are listening to the podcast probably already know about this, they had this morning, as we're recording, the Michigan Pro Half Marathon, Kira D'Amato, super impre- her incredible year continues, 68-57 to win the race. Uh, second place is Emma Bates, Emma Elma in uh, 69-43. That's a huge PB for DeMado. And it's the second fastest time by... I, oh, is it the second fastest time? I don't think... It, maybe that's not totally true. But not a lot of American women have run under 69 minutes this year. So super impressive for her. Isn't she trying to break the 10-mile record now? Yes. She is going to try to break the U.S. record in the 10-mile on November 23rd, according to Chris Chavez. I mean, she's a, got a great story. She was sort of a, not an NCAA star at American University, but a very good NCAA runner, and then pretty much quit competing competitively for, I think, almost 10 years. Yes, cool story. I mean, she's 36, mother of two. She's got cool coaching ties. Top 10 NCAA cross country for Matt Centrowitz, Matthew Centrowitz's father, Matt, is now coached by Scott Rasko, who's Alan Webb's coach. She recently ran 15.04 for 5K. She's crushing it. And I should have corrected myself. She is only the second American this year after Sarah Hall to break 69 minutes in the half marathon. So really impressive. And then the men's results, Morgan Morgan Pearson, pro triathlete. He beats all of the pro runners and runs 62-15, beats out Frank Lara, Tyler Day, and Scott Farble to take the win there. So another, you know, two pretty impressive and somewhat, uh, maybe D'Amato is not super surprising, but I think Pearson's win definitely is. It was his debut half marathon, and according to David Monty, uh, quote from a post-race odd, post-race interview, he says he only runs 65 miles a week at most. So to run 62.15 off of that, I mean, I don't know how good he is in the in the uh, triathlon, but he might want to consider just switching to running full-time. Wait, Morgan Pearson won it in 62.15? Is that what you just said? Yeah. Who was second? Uh, I think Frank Lara. So we have a guy who's not even running full-time who just won the thing. People are intrigued by Morgan Pearson. There was a hot thread on Morgan Pearson this week on the forums. Did anyone check that thread out? Actually, sorry, correction. Tyler Day was second, 62-16. Then Lara, then Scott Fobble. Uh I haven't read the thread on, on uh, Pearson, though. But I think, doesn't he run with the Tin Men a little bit? I think he trains with them a little bit for running. That was the whole debate, whether he was Tin Men, whether he was bashing Tin Men because he's a triathlon. I didn't really understand it. It was sort of an inside baseball thread about that type of stuff. But... I've been ranting about a lot in this podcast, but I, can I have another rant here? I'm going to go to men's shot put. Jack O'Gill, I don't like this story. It's, it's almost a cute story, but it's bothering me. Did you make the New Zealand, and, and Steve put it up on the homepage under the headline, pretty cool. So Steve liked this story. New Zealand shot putter Jack O'Gill gets put on the sto- postage stamp. So 
Steve likes this because it says it was very appropriate because Jacko's dad is a major stamp collector. But shouldn't you have to do more than finish like seventh at Worlds to get it put on a stamp? Like, shouldn't like a medal be required or something? Or is New Zealand so small of a country that I'd rather see Nick Willis on the stamp what, than what about Tom Walsh? They have a you know world world bronze medalist and uh, world indoor champion. If they're gonna put a shot thrower on the postage stamp, it should be him. I mean, it's hard for me to stomach much outrage about the New New Zealand postal system, but. You know, if if Jacko kills on a stamp, Tom Walsh did a bam, better be on a stamp as well. Do we know? Like New Zealand's under the total lockdown, but so the stamps, like, are they allowed to send anything out of the country, or can they only do like intercountry mail? Okay, I, I don't know, Robert, but we're getting way off topic here. All right, one more thing before we go: Alpha Fly Talk. Yes, it's back, people. All right, this we got an email. Not before we go, before we get into more Nike interviews. Oh, sorry, before we go to the uh, Matt Hart interview, of course, which you guys definitely, it was a great interview. You definitely should listen to this. But we got an email from uh, Tomek Beginski, uh, devoted listener to the podcast, and he linked to a story from the Fast Women newsletter about J.C. Smith. So she's an Air Force alum, and she was running a 10K at the Big City Invitational last week in New York. And... She was you know, she ran really fast, 3210. She got an Olympic trials qualifier out of that, which is 3225. But the question here is she ran this wearing Nike Alpha Phi shoes. And according to the Fast Women article, she had reached out to USA Track and Field to find out whether the now Nike Alpha Phi shoes she planned to wear to protect her calves will be allowed for Olympic trials qualifying performances. Answer, they would. I think I need to follow up with USATF on this because I don't understand this. World Athletics specifically passed a rule earlier this year saying you they put a limit on the stack height of shoes for track races. And it was, I think it was 25 millimeters. I'm almost certain the Alpha Flies fall, you know, they're above that. I thought they were 39 millimeters. I don't understand why this performance was allowed to count for trials qualifying purposes. And this is something USATF, I hope, will get clarification on. This is pretty obvious to me, John. The qualifying window started the shoes being allowed so people have already qualified using the shoes so they don't want to punish her moving forward so they want to let they don't want to have to kick people out who already qualified in the shoes or let them do it so they just want to have a level playing field for qualifying it's possible but we also don't know when the window USATF has still not said what the window for the Olympic trials will be they have not announced it when it began when it ends so could be that could make sense but we don't know and they haven't announced that they're going to expand the 1500 field from 30 to like 36 or 48, like I said they should. These people do not listen to me. I need to be, I need, I need to have a personal assistant that sends a letter for me to them every week. So, well, you guys talking about Olympic trials qualifying makes me think ahead. An Olympic trials in 2021, an Olympics in 2021. You got to have some hope, people. This is going to be a big week, actually. By the next time, next week's podcast, we'll have a presidential election. We may not even know the results. So, America, buckle down, do your civic duty, go out and vote, and then be Americans, be kind to each other. Let's let the process work out. <laughs> Hopefully, we're talking under calm terms next week. That is one of the beauties of Let's Run. We're all in a sort of siloed off, and in Let's Run, people from different persuasions, different viewpoints have to come together. So try to be civil to one another. And now we've got a great talk, part one of our talk with Matt Hart. If you want the full interview, join the Supporters Club. But part one, he talks about how it came about writing the book, the testosterone experiments, 
led by Alberto Salazar with the knowledge of Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, and a lot more. So here it is, Matt Hart, by the book, When It All Costs. All right, everyone, we're joined by a special guest, investigative journalist and author, Matt Hart. He's the author of When It All Cost, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. And this is the book everyone needs to read. It is the definitive story of the rise and fall of Alberto Salazar's Nike Oregon Project. But this book is so much more. It goes back to the foundings of Nike, Traces Athletics West, Mary Decker Slaney, Alberto Salazar as runners, athletes, steroids, what was going on, and then brings that to today, how the Oregon Project got started and traces the crazy path of the Oregon Project to Alberto Salazar being banned from the sport last year. And it's hard to give this book justice in describing it. Everyone needs to go out and read it. But Matt, congrats on this book. It's great. It synthesized together a story that we people have heard lots of parts of. And even myself as a journalist who's been... Alberto Salazar is my number one nemesis in the sport, I've said for a long time. And you did a good job of putting this all together. So congrats on the book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your, for your interest. It's been quite a journey. It's still hard to make sense of this story. And that's what was so good about the book. I mean, you, you have probably, what, 60 pages of notes at the back of it. I mean, this is not the traditional running book. I, I feel like... The stakes were high enough, and uh, the corporation that I was describing was powerful enough that I had to cross my T's and dot my I's. I mean, I'm sure you guys read the book Swoosh. It came out in the 90s, I think, uh, one of the first books about Nike. Um, J.B. Strasser and Lori Becklin wrote that book. Early on in my reporting, I talked to J.B. Strasser, and she told me that uh, Knight had sat down with his lawyers and her literary lawyers and they tried to squash the book early on. So I had this fear, maybe unfounded fear, that they were going to come for me. And therefore, you see all the notes and basically where everything in the book came from. Yeah, I just thought I had to be that thorough so that they couldn't attack me. So are you worried about being sued right now or you feel like you're pretty airtight at this point? I feel like I'm pretty airtight. I, I hired my own fact checkers. I hired the top fact checker at The New Yorker as my main fact checker, she called everyone back that was in the book and read to them the sections. And then uh, HarperCollins, my publisher, has a literary literary lawyer who went line by line with me. And so, you know, you end up editing things as you go, but I feel like it's uh, pretty bulletproof at this point. I mean, yeah, of course, there's mistakes that can be made, copy editing mistakes and whatnot. But yeah, I'm happy with how it turned out for sure. So you hired your own fact checker to do this yourself? Yeah, I actually hired three different fact checkers because it was so long and it took them so long to go through it. Yeah, that's not a service that a nonfiction book usually gets from a publisher, to be honest with you. It's not, that's not well known. I didn't know that going into it. They'll, they'll provide you with marketing and, of course, an editor that goes through the copy with you. But uh, to fact check it, you usually got to pay that out of pocket. So I, I was happy to do it. I mean, as a magazine writer, I had been through that process and I really grew to appreciate that process. Um, because you guys know, I mean, it's easy to make a mistake. It's easy to misinterpret something or write a date wrong. And so, yeah, it's just a necessity, a necessity for, uh, this kind of writing. Now you write that your involvement with this story seems to have begun in 2017 when you were mailed a USB drive with the interim USADA report into the Oregon project. How familiar were you with Salazar and NOP at that point? And 
you know, what sort of, got, I guess, yeah, how familiar were you with the story at that point? Yeah, I mean, I had been following the story as I was becoming a journalist. I, you know, really closely followed the Lance Armstrong saga and David Walsh's work and Juliet McCurr's work at the New York Times. And sort of as I was cutting my teeth, I was like, that's, that's what I'm interested in. And I was so burned by that. I don't know about you guys, but I had a yellow wristband. And I, I mean, I love that guy. I thought, uh, the tour of, uh, Lance Armstrong's U.S. Pulse team was amazing. And then quickly, if you keep reading and you keep uh, trying to understand the sport more and more deeply, you know, you quickly come to the conclusion that, oh, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that they're not talking about. And um, so as I started, you know, simultaneously, I was starting to write uh, about running and I just found that I was interested in it. So, yeah, I was following the story along and, um, you know, being an athlete and being in the scene, I knew some of the athletes. And of course, we'd talk about these things. Um, and then yeah, at some point I started, it became sort of a journalistic curiosity and I started writing about it. Um, you know, I wrote about the $100 million lawsuit between Lance and Floyd uh, for the Atlantic and I had written about some doping and ultra running and controversy around that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was a curiosity of mine. It's something I followed and and, and had begun writing about more and more and more. Um, and, and I think that's why I was in this milieu, so to speak, where i maybe be someone who'd receive a USB drive and, uh, you know, someone who they'd think the, the sender would think could do something about it or possibly write about it. And I guess I didn't say previously, you're a runner, you were a professional ultra runner because in reading this book, there's not the mistakes that you get when a non-runner writes a running book. Oh, great. So did that spark? I mean, sure. A lot of us, I could have gotten a USB drive. That doesn't spark me to write a 300 page book on this and take you've been working on this for what over two years now Uh, yeah about three and a half now i think yeah it's been a long journey yeah i mean running yeah it's my passion it's the thing i'm gonna do after this call it's uh what i you know sort of formulate my life around and so i mean that's that's very kind of you to say hopefully that's totally true that there aren't the silly mistakes uh that a non-runner would add to a book um but yeah, I mean, it's the sport that I care the most about. It, honestly, it's brought me most everything that's good in my life from what I write about to my wife. I met my wife at a, a group run at the Boulder Running Club, uh, or the, uh, Boulder Running here in, in Boulder. So um, yeah, it's what I write about and it's my interest and it's sort of my passion. So, And once you decided to write the book, I mean, how did you go about reporting that was difficult. So I wrote a front page piece for the New York Times on the what was in the USB drive, which was the USADA document that had been appropriately named TikTok, TikTok, dot, dot, dot on my on the thumb drive. But, um, you know, then I just started interviewing. I continued to interview people that were involved and, you know, from Dathan Ritzenhain to the Gauchers. And it was really the response of some of the athletes that were just so obviously scared, didn't want to talk about any, you know, wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't jump on the phone, wouldn't uh, kind of exonerate themselves in some way. They had been shown to lie to USADA. And so I knew there was more there if athletes are contorting themselves to tell half-truths and lie. And then talking to Adam and Kara, you know, they didn't want to be, they weren't interested in being in that first piece I wrote for the Times, but they, you know, they were gracious enough to talk to me about sort of for background, what was going on? And I, there were things I couldn't believe the, the testosterone at training camp and the fact that Alberta liked to massage Galen rather than have the massage therapist do it. That was one of the questions I was like, this sounds really unbelievable to me. And when I asked them about it, they're like, Oh yeah, that, that's complete. That's totally what happened. 
And then Adam said something about, you know, he was on a tangent kind of explaining to me a relationship as part of the story. And he's like, he said, this is a book. And it just sort of, you know, I said, yeah, let's, well, let's write a book. And so that's really kind of how it started. And further I got down, I just started calling, you know, reaching out to and calling everyone involved. And the story really just kind of grew from there. And simultaneously, I had read all the, you know, as a sports fan and interested in this topic, I had read all the Nike books. And so I had this basic level of background. And I'd been to Hayward Field and I'd watched some of these athletes run. Um, and so, yeah, it really just grew from there. And, and I just became more and more curious, uh, kind of based on a lot of the responses from whether it was a Nike executive or, um, you know, from from Darren Treasure to, <laughs> to some of the athletes who happened to sort of, you know, tell small little lies to get themselves out of the situation. I realized there's there's got to be more here. Yeah, I noticed one line that struck me from your acknowledgments was you said, I was struck by the courage and far less often the cowardice of some involved in the story. And I think it's, you know, you can kind of tell the ca- the courage comes from people like the Gauchos, people like Danny Mackey, who have a lot to lose and still sort of spoke out and put their name to it. But, I mean, who were you talking about? Who struck you as sort of being coward- cowardly in this story? Uh, I mean, Nike has – it. that's hard for me to say, and that's why, obviously, I wasn't going to call anyone out specifically. But there are athletes who, you know, lied to USADA. And then when I approached them, you know, they would turn and, and attack me. Uh, one athlete in particular found every email they could on HarperCollins' website – and emailed them that I was the wrong person to write this book. And she, basically, she tried to cancel me because the story, the part of her story was her lying to USADA. And so, you know, it just seemed uh, there were a handful of people who were instantly, um, uh, how do I say, on guard. You know, they were very on guard the whole time. And some of them used Nike as an excuse. They won't let me speak about this. Uh, on the record, unless I have the okay from someone in the communications department. Yet I knew that wasn't entirely true because I had had all these other employees, current employees, talk to me. And so they were kind of playing, some of them played games, you know, Nike communications sort of dragged me through the mud, I guess, or like just kind of seemed like they were going to respond, but then never had an official response. And I'm sure there was turmoil going on behind the scene. I mean, Alberto was under investigation and he hadn't yet been sanctioned, but that was eminent. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you want clean sport, it just seemed like as a base level assumption, you as an athlete would be willing to talk to someone who's writing the, the true story of the Nike Oregon project. And if you didn't have any, if you weren't implicated in anything, why wouldn't you just tell me that clearly? I mean, I'm sure you guys obviously run into this where people are skittish about talking about things or, you know, want certain things as a non-subject that you can ask them about and, you know, I mean, that was the whole thing, managing that, navigating that with different athletes at different times or different employees at different times. Yeah, no, it's definitely something I've noticed. I mean, I've talked to a lot of the people you mentioned in the book and like Dathan Ritzenhain, he's usually fairly open to interviews, but sometimes I'll call him up and he's like, I, look, I, I don't want to talk about the Salazar stuff or I can't talk about this certain thing. And I think that sort of speaks to, and this is something you mentioned in the book, is just the the power that Nike holds in the sport of track and field. And this is why, you know, Cara Goucher and Adam Goucher and Danny Mackey and some of these other people that do speak out, Steve Magnus, they can get worried about speaking out because, you know, while they're at Nike, obviously Nike sort of controls the salary and everything. But even once they leave, Nike has such a sway and influence on this sport that they're worried about maybe future ramifications for their career and that sort of thing. So I think that's 
that's why you get this reluctance from some people. They're worried just if I say something, Nike may come after me, you know, a few a few years down the road, something like that. Yeah, and some of them had signed NDAs. You know, Vern Gambetta was speaking to me, knowing full well that he was, you know, made possibly in violation of his NDA. While I was interviewing him, his his wife came in and, and was upset that he was talking to a journalist. You know, things like that were happening. And people, yeah, that people were scared. Some had signed NDAs, some hadn't. But they had, you know, the the brand, you know, they're the most powerful brand in the sport. You guys know and talk about this all the time. You know, they have undue influence in a lot of areas. And yeah, it was pretty obvious very early on that people were worried about that. Were there any other challenges that you faced in reporting this? I mean, the basic challenge in reporting the book was just getting the breadth of interviewee and making sure I covered all my bases and tried to talk to every single person. You know, the timeline, like I mentioned, was pretty tight. Um, and then, of course, the fact-checking and uh, process took longer than thought. And it, I had to edit the book and then re-go through or re, re, uh, redo the editing process. So basically the timeline and then getting in touch with everyone um, was was probably the biggest obstacles. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine this story was evolving. I mean, last year you had Salazar banned and that's a huge development and that didn't happen until September 30th. And then you had these Mary Kane allegations come out in November. So there's still, and then Salazar still is appealing his suspension and, we heard originally that wasn't supposed to be until November, and now it's maybe being pushed back to March, I think, the CAS appeal. So this is still an ongoing story. Yeah, I, I felt like it was crashing around me while I was reporting it. And, and that was interesting and great. Um, but, you know, it was disheartening at times, too. There were things in the book that I was like, this is fantastic. Danny Mackey or someone has never mentioned this to anyone before. And I knew because I'd read everything else, obviously, but... And then, of course, he'd mentioned it in, a, in an interview with you guys or someone else. And uh, it's like, you know, the story was crashing all around me and more and more was coming out that I had already reported in the book. So that was at times disheartening. But, uh, you know, I appreciate the work that other journalists have done and it made the book richer. Um, but, you know, the chore then in a book length narrative is making it a story worth reading rather than chapter after chapter of like news, a, a news report or a news story. And that was a challenge. Yeah, that's a thing I thought you did an excellent job with is clearly uh, like we've been involved with this. I mean, since the beginning of Let's Run, like Let's Run started and I heard, I mean, I was still competing as an athlete. Like Let's Run started in 2001. I mean, 2000, I think Oregon Project started 2001, which is crazy mm-hmm. to me because I remember competing against these guys and like I was some hack and like this young kid, Galen Rupp, ran the 10K and I'm like, oh, wow, if I keep competing, I'll have to beat this kid. Yeah. And then I became a journalist and knew the details, some of the details of this, but you did a wonderful job of painting the story. I knew Nike also is this powerful entity, but you go way back and to like Frank Shorter and Nike getting established. And I think when you're a certain age, like 10 years before you were aware of stuff, you don't realize that reality was very different. Like in the seventies, Nike was not that powerful. Right. And you tell this story, how, Frank Shorter was supposed to wear Nikes at the 1976 Olympics and the shoe fell apart when he's warming up. And from that, you know, they decided to start this group athletics West. And I'd always heard about doping rumors of athletics West and and you sort of paint that and go forward till today, how they're paying athletes under the table and certain coaches thought paying athletes under the table was actually worse than doping. I think Jeff Johnson said that in your book. And I'm like, what? Like doping's way worse than paying an athlete under the table. But we all make these sort of 
delineations in our mind of like what's what's black, what's white, what's gray. And having read the book, having followed Alberto, I'm still not sure what to make sense of it all. <laughs> like, where do you see now? We can go back and talk about some of the details of the story because it's fascinating. We don't want to go through everything in the book, obviously. We want people to read it. But right now, how do you see Alberto Salazar? How do you see this playing out? Like, when people ask you, like, what do you think of Alberto Salazar? What do you say? I mean, that was something I was trying to get at throughout the book. And, of course, he didn't want to do interviews. Um, and lots of good journalism and, and books have been written about characters who, you know, never sit down with the author. So I, I had to amass stories about him and let the reader kind of decide for themselves. He's still a bit of an enigma to me, honestly. Um, the first time I interviewed Steve Magnus, I asked him, like, can you give me some sort of measure of the man? And he said he's just a win-at-all-costs kind of guy. And, of course, that's where I got my title for the book. But we tend to lionize and idolize athletes like Alberto was or coaches. And, and you know, I think that's part of Nike's problem often and sometimes journalism's problem in telling the true story because we get so uh, – our vision is clouded by the athletes. But, you know, they're human beings. They're not all good. They're not all bad. Obviously, Nike's not all good, not all bad. Alberto Salazar, they're complicated uh, people uh, and, and they're humans. <clears throat> so – I really wanted to give him a fair shake. I too was impressed uh, with his career and, and going back to report it on it. You know, I, I tried to give him his due, like which is the amazing athlete that he was and, and some of the technologies even that he pushed into the forefront of the sport and professional running when he was coaching. Um, but he, he, yeah, I mean, he's a bit of an enigma, but he does seem to come clearer the longer I reported on him. I mean, he did, Kara said after the heart attack that there was a distinct shift bringing on Mo. There was now a real focus on winning medals. And he had a leash. He had a long leash from Nike for, for 10 years, really. They didn't do anything all that impressive. Some, some national level victories for sure. And they were a good team. But, you know, after 10 years of spending a lot of Nike money, it seemed like there was pressure on him. Uh, there must have been pressure on him to actually get someone to the you know gold medal in the Olympics or standing on the podium more often in international competitions. Um, and, you know, more than Kara, other people that were involved in the team said he sort of changed after the heart attack. Now, I, I don't go, I don't lean on that too hard. Like maybe his brain was damaged or something during this and it changed him uh, psychologically because it's just hard to believe and impossible to corroborate. But um, at some point, his attitude started to change. And you know, I've read this, I've, I've heard this term since, since I finished the book called uh, noble cause corruption, where, you know, you think you're doing something, you, you think your goal is so noble that you're willing to approach and then sometimes step over the line to achieve that goal, you know, or win at all costs or the ends justifies the means kind of idea. And, I, and it does seem like that's uh, kind of where the team sort of got off track and, you know, uh, stepped over the line with USADA and WADA. Is your read on the situation that Alberto definitely violated anti-doping rules and should be banned? Or like, you don't really draw conclusions. I think you were very fair. You would present conflicting sides of stories. And I thought your description even of Let's Run.com was amazing. Oh, good. There's a whole chapter on Let's Run. And I thought you were very fair. Like some people like, oh, there's crap on Let's Run or it's the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, Life's not that simple. There's wonderful things in Let's Run, but there's problems. Like anyone run, look at Facebook, look at Twitter. Like there's lots of hard problems running an internet forum. But yeah. what's your, personally, 
and I think it, it was good he sort of kind of left out at any conclusion, but like, what do you think should happen to Alberta? Yeah, I mean, he's been banned. So I think that is enough for us to say that he broke the rules. He stepped over the rules. It's, this is hard for the general public. And that's part of the, one of the reasons I thought it deserved a book length treatment. Because it's not as egregious as what Armstrong was up to. You know, they're not injecting EPO or pulling the bus over to pretend like they've got uh, a flat a fat ti- flat tire or some engine troubles so that everyone can shut the curtains and shoot. Or uh, I think that was blood doping. But so it's it's obviously not as egregious as what those guys were doing. But he obviously stepped over the line, you know, with three different things, the infusion with Magnus and probably, possibly, other athletes who Dr. Brown neglected to write down the quantities. And then, you know, trafficking testosterone. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's really hard for me to wrap my head around that he's rubbing testosterone on his sons on the Nike campus in the formerly Lance Armstrong Fitness Center. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's an unambiguously illegal drug. And so I think... With with the approval of John Parker, the head of, CEO of Nike. Mark Parker. Mark Parker, yeah. Mark Parker, excuse me. Yeah, so he's involved. He's emailing them. I wonder how much testosterone an athlete can take before they fail the testosterone to epitestosterone test. And, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. It, and, and it's hard to explain. I mean, I, all I can... I assume there, I'll make a huge assumption here, that Alberto, because he had started using testosterone himself in 1991 that he didn't seem to think that this was a risky drug, that he had discredited its power maybe. You know, he seems to do that with a lot of different substances uh, throughout the process. And I mean, if you really, if you, uh, an astute reader will realize, you know, the risk he had given to Mo Farah by uh, increasing his calcium, even though he has this condition, you know, so he's risky, he's giving him, you know, calcitonin, which increases your cal- your calcium. And he's giving him high do- mega high doses of vitamin D, which uh, increases your absorption of calcium. But he didn't know because he's not a doctor that Mo had this condition, hy- hypercalcicuria, I think it's called, where his body naturally produces too much calcium. And so now you've got a situation where Alberto's prescribing him or getting him these drugs. And he could have renal failure, heart failure, like all these issues that Alberto could not have foreseen could have happened to Mo. And that's all because he's got these athletes on drugs that he seems to think are inconsequential and harmless on some level. I I mean, and that's my speculation because that's, that's how he seemed to proceed. Like this is no big deal. It's just high dose vitamin D and yeah, taken by itself. Maybe that isn't a big deal, but with an athlete like Mo, now you've run into a a serious issue. I mean, if you look at what he did, also the, the connection between his testosterone use and his heart attack, like it's really messy. It's really complicated. You know, endocrinology is is a really complicated and evolving field of science and usually you go to school for this but alberto had never gone to school for this and was trying to apply what he thought he knew in a haphazard manner and you know it's a great risk so matt one thing you mentioned were these testosterone experiments that alberto was conducting on his sons and i agree the whole thing that whole thing is bananas to me because you draw upon this espn article from i think 2006 when which happened right after Justin Gatlin was banned, and they dug into this excuse that Justin Gatlin had been sabotaged by Chris Wetstein, their massage therapist, mm-hmm. and Alberto Salazar is quoted in that piece as basically saying, "This doesn't make any sense. This is ludicrous. Anyone would ever do that." And then suddenly, a few years later, he thinks this is a legitimate issue that he needs to experiment on his sons for. But I think the other issue is like, okay, let's even let's say that was the reason he was conducting these experiments to find out this limit in order to avoid his athletes being sabotaged. 
What purpose does that serve? If your athletes are sabotaged, knowing the limit at which they're going to be test positive, that doesn't stop the fact from occurring. Like, I don't understand how he can sort of justify this is a research experiment we need to be doing. Yeah, I can't help you there. I, I, I went to great pains to try to figure that out. And of course, I explain his side of the argument in the book. And I, we talked to Wetstein. Wetstein claims he wasn't even there uh, the day that Galen says he gave him a, a quick shoulder rub down. Um, so there's, somebody's lying here, right? And so, but that's beside the point. You're right. Um, you know, he's testing testosterone. He's testing what we found, find is his own version of Androgel, which had been prescribed to him. And that's it. So now you're assuming if you get sabotaged, it's going to be with the same, uh, concoction of Androgel that Salazar has a prescription for, which, you know, there are other versions of testosterone. There are other drugs that you could rub on as a cream. And so that's a huge leap. It strains credulity, it really does. I mean, Magnus couldn't believe it when he was sort of describing it to me. Um, you know, I'll say this, the other coach that we know of on the Nike campus, he told me a story about that those days when they were testing it. And he said, Alberto came up to him very excited and said, you've got to come check this out. We're testing testosterone in the Lance Armstrong Fitness Center. Come be a part of this. And he said, no, very kindly said, no, thank you. Alberto turned and, and walked away just shaking his head. Complete disbelief. And yet you have Mark Parker emailing him that it would be exciting to see at what level um, of testosterone cream, how many pumps of the cream would it take to have someone fail the testosterone to epitestosterone test. So yeah, it's really hard to believe. I mean, this is an unambiguously illegal drug. Again, the only assumption I can come to there, and this is just my own speculation, is that Alberto's years of testosterone use had sort of informed him, or, or he came to believe possibly that it just wasn't a serious drug that this wasn't a big deal. Uh, and he treated it like it wasn't a big deal with the exception of the secrecy. You know, he, he wouldn't, wasn't obviously speaking about his own testosterone use starting in 91. He wasn't speaking of the media to it. You know, when he won comrades in 94 for the last, his last big victory, you know, he claimed Prozac had helped him come back from the depths of his overtraining syndrome. And, you know, he had admitted to being on prednisone. And so, I, I mean, I don't even speculate. I just lay out the facts as he said them. You know, you're led to believe that the testosterone probably helped. You know, he'd been on it for at least three years up until that point. He denied being on it for the race. Of course, we have to say that. But then, you know, there's uh, extracurricular benefits to using testosterone and performance enhancing drugs for years. I mean, they have to have lingering benefits. Um, so anyway, that's a long way to say I, I found it hard to believe. <laughs> You touched on a ton there. Yeah. First of all, I guess for the record, did Al when did Alberto admit to being on the testosterone in 91? How did that come about? Was that in... That was through USADA, through testimony with USADA. I'm just shocked that he had actually admitted that. I mean, I knew that was already out there, but yeah, that was kind of crazy. Jan Smolovitz, I think, was his doctor. And at times he had seemed as though he had two prescriptions to it. Um, yeah. And in fairness to Alberto... Getting off-label prescription drugs on its own is not a violation of USADA rules. It's crazy. It's a violation of FDA rules and a bunch of other stuff, but it's not a doping offense. But running testosterone experiments on your kids, I mean, USADA, never, and I agree, that is a doping violation. So I think that's going to get him, or it has gotten him, unless he somehow can get that overturned. Yeah. And also in fairness to him, when I read the book, you just do such a good job of painting who Alberto is and kind of how he's this crazy guy or maybe crazy genius or however you want to describe him i was like oh yeah maybe he 
did think they could sabotage. But also, at the, at the same time, this is the perfect experiment to see how much testosterone you could get. And if I had to bet my life, I bet he's given testosterone to athletes. Maybe not without their knowledge. I mean, I have no proof of that, but just... He's obsessed with testosterone, and he might say, look, I'm obsessed of giving people vitamin, whatever it is, D, so their testosterone goes up. But there's just a lot of stuff where athletes are suspicious of stuff. Galen Rupp's going off somewhere. It's just like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Um, no, well done. I think you're right. Like, the the obsession, the I thought some of the things I enjoyed the most in this book were just some of the crazy thing lengths that Alberto would go to to, like, try to get an edge or try to raise his athlete's testosterone, like, He's prescribing them like military grade strength vit- amounts of vitamin D to raise their testosterone. He sends them an article about sunbathing, like should they be out there doing that to raise their testosterone? He, you had something according to Steve Magnus, Alberto once gave his son Alex gas station dick pills to see if they actually increase testosterone as they claimed. Like he's he's it's very clear that he's obsessed with raising this uh, levels of testosterone. And I think the biggest sort of curiosity that everyone has and this is still unresolved in your book it's unresolved from any the whole test thing anyone knows because the only people who know about it are Alberto and Galen is these uh tubes of androgel that were around their apartments in Park City I think it was like summer of 2008 or something like that that John Steiner saw and Galen is given private massages by Alberto and the thing that everyone wants to know is whether he was actually massaged with androgel or if it was just for some reason Alberto chose to massage him himself instead of the professionally employed massage therapist i think that's the big question we still don't really have a great answer to that question yeah i agree um i try to lay out both sides of the story there uh, you know there is plausible deniability depending on how you look at it um but as you guys know speaking to coaches and other athletes the coach has enough to do He's not also going to be the massage therapist that sets up the table and gets the creams right ready and gives the massage. You know, there that just seemed uh, so odd. <laughs> and then when taken, you know, when Kara um, and Adam, you know, they testified that or they told me that there was testosterone cream on the counter, and they were so naive back, uh, you know, in 07, 08 when they started seeing this thing. Um, that they did really didn't know what it was or pay that much attention to it. And, you know, when you put the pieces together, it doesn't look good. But you're right. Until Galen or, or uh, Salazar talk, you know, we'll, we'll never know. I mean, and they have claimed that they didn't use it uh, in that manner. But uh, there's other answers. There's other questions to be answered uh, if that's the case. So a couple of things. This book also linked together these like crazy little things of the Let's Run world that one, I'm not sure you know. Did you know that John Steiner and Sarah Steiner, they're now divorced. These were these two massage therapists who bump into Alberto at an airport or I guess Amy Begley. And then the next thing you know, they're massaging this Nike Oregon team, which is crazy. The best athletes in America. But they met on Let's Run.com. Like they started tech, like just exchanging messages. That's how they met each other. Did you know that? Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. Um, you know, they, like you said, they've since been divorced and neither of them were eager to speak about the other person. Um, so yeah, I didn't get any of their history. It seemed off limits. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a good relationship. Like there's actually a story in Let's Run about the wonderful, you know, them getting married in this love story. It didn't turn out. So oh wow, internet romance is just like the other romance, but it, it's just crazy when I think about that. They also lived in Ithaca where my brother was the cross-country coach at Cornell, like all these small things. The other thing is 
George Malley, who was in Athletics West, did you know he's a moderator on Let's Run? I did, yeah. Yep. And also, like, so you didn't have this in there. Like, George admits to taking Winstraw, which was a banned steroid. You didn't put that in there. Like, I was curious why you left that out. Yeah. Did you know that as well? I had read that. I, I, I feel like he was hard to pin down. <laughs> I'll put it like that. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I probably should have worked harder to get that in, but I just felt like I didn't have it nailed down. You know, I just felt like full disclosure, I should say that, because we still get hell. Like, you guys are employing a drug cheat on Let's Run. And, uh, I mean, when we started Let's Run, there's no way I could put all these things together. But at some point, he offered to moderate, and he's pretty stringent about it. Yeah. And also, like, prior to Let's Run, there was an email list, and he admitted to taking steroids on there. And I'm like, oh, this is honesty. Who's this guy? And I, as an athlete, had always heard these things about Athletics West and doping. I'm like, well... Right. This guy's being honest. I wish more people would be honest. And I think that's one thing I get from the book. If Nike, if they if they solely didn't care about winning at all cost, if they had been honest with Athletics West and some of the things going on there, I don't think we would have been gotten into the trouble we had with the Oregon Project. Yeah. I mean, I lay that story out and I see there's just so many similarities, right? The failure on the international scene on the Olympic level you know, causes them to want to put real money into and real effort into first athletics West, which then, you know, kind of flames out in a, in a similar way with allegations and blood. It seems as though they were testing blood doping. Um, and Jeff Johnson was really upfront about this. You know, he didn't have any direct knowledge, but as you saw in the book, he was like, yeah, that was probably happening. (laughs) And so, and of course I talked to uh, JB Strasser uh, and she had evidence in her book swoosh about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really analogous. The story happened again, you know, with the 2001 Boston Marathon, Tom, Tom Clark and Alberto Salazar were watching it uh, transpire and thought to themselves, wow, this is a complete failure for American athletes. Nobody's in the top five. Nobody's in the top three. Nobody's won it since Alberto had won it. And so, you know, spurned by that, they start the Oregon Project. And it's pretty analogous, uh, I think, the story. And then, uh, unfortunately, how they both sort of devolved into winning at all costs and, and seeing how far they could push things. Well, I think one thing I'm kind of interested about, there is obviously there is another team on the Nike campus, the Bauman Track Club. And Jerry Schumacher is the head coach of that group. He has a sterling reputation in the sport. He was originally brought in to sort of succeed Alberto, and then there was the schism, and now they're you know, sort of separate entities. Obviously, NOP doesn't exist anymore. But there are some things in the book he sort of mentioned that some of his athletes were also taking some medications that question, you know, there was questions about whether they needed them or not. Like, I think there was one part Salazar was asked about how Salinsky got so good in 2010 and Salinsky Salazar basically said it was the thyroid. And he claimed there were four other athletes from Schumacher's group on thyroid medication. And then Cara Goucher said the year she left Nike, Chris Salinsky and Matt Tegenkamp, they warned her, you know, USADA's been sniffing around. You might want to lower your Advair dose. Apparently, they were both on Advair. And so this is a group that, you know, they, they have a good reputation. And most people in the sport, I think, assume they do things the right way. Is that your read on it? Or do you think these were more serious things that needed to be looked into? How do you sort of assess their use of these sort of medications? Yeah, I mean, that is my read on it. it so, I mean, this takes a little bit of unpacking, but... There was so much excitement around Dr. Brown at Nike and how, you know, everyone was running well. And they thought initially that this was amazing and on the up and up. 
And even though Jerry had split off to coach his own team, there was pressure inside, you know, behind the berm, as they say, inside the Beaverton headquarters for Jerry to send his athletes to Dr. Brown. And he did that. Now, this is Dr. Brown before really any suspicion. And so, you know, he felt that pressure and he allowed his athletes to go. Now, as I describe in the book, um, too many of them, let's say, came back with the prescriptions that you would assume for Advair and uh, prednisone and thyroid medication, whatever the cocktails that uh, Dr. Brown had been previously uh, prescribing. And Jerry was like, look, no, stop this right now. This is this doesn't make that much sense to me. He told each athlete to go see two doctors outside of the Nike ecosystem so he could get they could get a more objective perspective. And so, um, you know, each individual athlete is responsible for what they put into their body, as you know. Um, but there's this system that hopefully is obvious in the book where, you know, their contracts are held over their heads. Um, also, you know, before anything turned sour, as you guys know, the coach, your coach, you have to buy, there's a certain level of buy-in that you have to believe in with your coach and the doctors and the, and the team that you've uh, surrounded yourself with. If you don't believe they know what they're doing, of course, when you're tired, you're not going to go do that tempo run or whatever they've prescribed. So, you know, they really become this familial relationship and they all trusted Alberto and the athletes trusted Jerry. And I mean, yeah. So as, as Alberto started to wade into the gray waters, let's say, you know, the athletes, I just feel for them really, because they're sort of deeply betrayed. Um, and, and, you know, you can be critical of them because they are responsible for everything they put into their bodies. And some of them threw up red flags. I mean, Dathan was like, this doesn't sound like he flat out said to Alberto about the L-carnitine. Look, this doesn't sound legal. Is this legal? Like he pressed him, as did Steve Magnus and, and other athletes. And so it wasn't that, you know, the red flags weren't flying, but on some level, they just, you know, wholeheartedly believed in the athlete. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword because that is necessary and very good for training at that level. It, it's a, you know, you know, a deep trusting relationship with your coach obviously is mostly good. But, um, you know, when your coach starts to do things that are in the gray waters and the gray areas, you just have to, athletes are responsible for being vigilant and knowing when, uh, let's double check with a different doctor. And so to answer your question, you know, Jerry's side of the fence kind of got dragged into that vortex of Dr. Brown, but quickly pumped the brakes and, and addressed, uh, you know, their concerns. So, Previously, you said the other coach on the campus, you know, that Alberto came and talked to the other coach on the campus about testosterone. Were you specifically referencing Jerry? And did Jerry tell you that? Did you talk to Jerry for this book, about the book? Want to find out if Matt spoke to Jerry Schumacher? Spoiler alert, he actually did. But you'll have to wait till next week to find out the details. In part two of our interview with Matt, we talk about that, what Alberto really thought about Lance Armstrong, about Nike psychologist Darren Treasure playing mind games with Matt as he wrote this book, and about the alleged kiss between Alberto Salazar and Kara Goucher on the flight to Daegu at the World Championships, and how that impacted their relationships, Adam's relationship with Alberto, and much more. That's in part two. But if you're a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member, you can listen to the full interview right now. Support independent journalism. Become a member today. Get huge savings on running shoes. Go to Let's Run.com slash subscribe. You can join for your first month for $1.